to the Plugged In Podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm joined today by my colleague, Hunter Pearl, who recently published a blog on IER's website about a new plan from the Bureau of Land Management to reform the resource management plan for the greater sage-grouse. Hunter, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Great to be here. Uh, so why don't you start by explaining to our audience why, uh, why an energy think tank is concerned about the regulations surrounding a small bird out west? Yeah, so this... Bird, it's uh, got a bizarre uh, courtship display, definitely something to, to look up, but um, it spans across 11 western states, uh, so it, it has a big range, and it's particularly its courtship display um, involves it gathering in big areas, so the, the feeling is that it needs a lot of room on the, the prairies, basically the sagebrush steppes uh, where it lives, and to that effect... Um, there's been a lot of federal action to try to protect the sage-grouse from development, which could potentially uh, disrupt its displays and hurt its numbers. In 2005, the Fish and Wildlife Service studied it to, to see if it should be added, if the, the sage-grouse should be added to the endangered or threatened species lists. It decided it was not threatened, and so that was the end of that for five years. Then in 2010, it worried the, the Fish and Wildlife Service worried that the sage-grouse habitat may be disrupted by development, and so they decided that in five years, they would decide whether uh, to add it to the endangered species list or not. And this is a huge deal. The endangered species list gives a lot of protections to animals to the point that it can really incentivize any kind of development working around these animals to really have to rethink whether the whole venture is worth it because there are serious fines and they can be completely prevented from doing any kinds of development if uh, endangered or threatened species are around. It was estimated that if this uh, greater sage-grouse was added to one of these lists, it would cost the economy of these states $5.6 billion per year. Uh, so a huge uh, problem there. So you have this long history of regulatory red tape all wrapped up into protecting these birds when, for one, it's not clear that they're really endangered this whole time or that they're, you know, they're, they're, that their population is being threatened by development on federal lands. And you had uh, the Obama administration stepping in to, to intervene. And, and so what sort of burden has that placed on people looking to develop land in the in these uh, sagebrush focal areas that um, you're talking about. It's exactly right. There's a huge swaths of land um, just unused for that reason. It's it's extremely uh, burdensome to try to do any kind of development. There's a lot of uh, potential mining activity that could be uh, happening here, uh, but it, you just can't when it's in an area that the bird might be in. And to say again, the, the bird is not endangered, not even threatened. Some recent um, studies have shown um, bird, the, the sage-grouse uh, population increasing uh, recently. Um, you know, the states have had plans in place for a while, and they have seemed to be doing quite well under them. In some states, there's enough of these birds that uh, they allow hunting of them. But for the federal government, it doesn't look at, you know, how is 
uh, the sage grouse doing in this state or this state. It has one policy towards the sage grouse, which is they may be threatened, so give them the maximum protection. Don't allow any development that might offend the sage grouse in anywhere where it flies. So your blog post that we're discussing here mostly goes over the uh, the Bureau of Land Management management's uh, revision to the management plan for these birds. Um, can you just give our listeners an idea of what changes they've proposed and uh, what we can expect from the BLM? The new revisions um, will limit the sagebrush focal areas, those most restrictive areas, to 1.8 million acres. So we're still, uh, we, we've cut down about 9 million acres there, but they've, they've still got some area and obviously all the, the state plans. And, and this will also make uh, give greater flexibility to the states to make their own conservation plans, to grant land use waivers. The idea being, again, the, these western states, they care about their animals and they probably have much better knowledge of how to protect them than the federal government does. Um, and so uh, this is really going to be a win for the states. It's going to allow them to uh, open up for development, but also to craft conservation plans that will actually work. Uh, the Endangered Species Act does not have a great history in terms of uh, uh, making these species recover. I think states will do a much better job. So you also discussed some other news on the regulatory front. Uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service has also proposed revisions to the Endangered Species Act. Uh, and in your blog, you discuss how all these debates are tied into a broader discussion surrounding the the power of executive agencies uh, in terms of regulation. Can you explain where that debate is headed, um, both sort of in our public conversation, but specifically in the judiciary? Yes. So the Endangered Species Act, it's um, getting revised just so that threatened species uh, won't automatically uh, be given all the uh, restrictions that are applied to uh, endangered species, and they're clarifying some, some standards for species listing and delisting and critical habitat designation. But there's a broader problem here, which is that the reason why, for instance, this revision is necessary is that agencies are given these very broad mandates. They're incentivized to read them as uh, liberally as possible in terms of their own power uh, to do things. So the case recently that just recently came before the Supreme Court, Weyerhaeuser versus Fish and Wildlife Service, um, this concerned the Fish and Wildlife Service trying to uh, designate Louisiana. an area in Louisiana uh, as a critical habitat for the dusky gopher frog. The problem is that frog does not live in that area. It has not lived in that area for 50 years and it would not want to live in the area. The area is not uh, optimal for the frog unless significant changes were made. Yet despite all of this, they labeled it a critical habitat, which meant that loggers in the area could not develop the land on the idea that somehow if the land were different it could potentially hold this frog and so that came before the supreme court and justice roberts specifically said that court should be skeptical of agency claims of unreviewable discretion basically what justice roberts is signaling here is that there's a possibility that we're going to open up that doctrine to uh possibility that it could be rolled back a little bit 
Exactly. Th this case is, um, seems basically repudiation of uh, our deference or seminal rock deference, the sort of cousin of Chevron. Basically, uh, Chevron says that um, an agency can interpret legislation uh, and the court is going to basically accept uh, whatever the agency says is their mandate under the legislation. Our deference refers to the uh, agency's interpretation of their own regulation. But in both cases, it's just the, the court is not really investigating whether the uh, agency is correctly interpreting their statutes, whether they are at, in any way acting under the law. And Justice Roberts saying that the uh, court should be skeptical of these agency claims didn't overturn it, but uh, it seems the court is moving in that direction. And the recent uh, justices, uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, have been explicitly uh, critical of Chevron deference. So hopefully we will see some real change there for courts to be investigating agencies trying to uh, expand their power. So you, you conclude the blog post uh, basically for a call to end Chevron and our deference. Um, and obviously there's a defense of those doctrines that's put forward that's basic, that basically says uh, the people within the regulatory agencies have the expertise and uh, are in a position to take a directive from a piece of legislation and administer it in the best way possible. How would you respond to uh, respond to that that position? If you think that the agencies should be doing one action or another, just have that be in law. Have uh, our representatives, the people that we actually elect and are democratically accountable, have them write into law uh, that an agency should be, let's say, that uh, on the question of whether the EPA uh, can interpret any body of water as a navigable body of water. It's clear the EPA wants to interpret it that way. That would give them more power and prestige. But is that what we want for the nation? Well, how about we have our legislators uh, determine that? The, the point of regulation is to, to have a regular set of rules and norms. Uh, if you want it to be regular, you need it to be predictable, accountable, agencies are neither of those things. Um, as we see, they uh, interpret things differently depending on the administration. Just have uh, it be in law. That way, it'll be checking the natural tendency of agencies to expand their power uh, without any checks like a democratic system. My guest today has been Hunter Pearl. You can read more about this topic at our website, instituteforenergyresearch.org. Hunter, thanks for joining me today. Thank you.